if you take the just a broad brush, the customer is always right. You may end up doing things in your product roadmap that don't make sense for the rest of your customers. You may end up doing things from a services perspective that are not scalable or that lead to not the best outcomes. Welcome to NPS I Love You, a podcast powered by Catalyst. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and this show is all about awesome people, ideas, and stories, all with a customer success twist. On NPS I Love You, I talk to everyone from artists to scientists, CEOs to CSMs, and everyone in between to give you powerful insights that will help you in your career and in life. Deborah Swires is an expert in all things HR and customer success, and she's about to join HackerRank as CCO, supporting over 2,000 customers and 11 million developers. In this episode, Deborah shares the worst question she was ever asked in an interview, what it means to be data-driven in HR, and her thoughts on the future of work. So, exciting week for you. Is this your first week at HackerRank? Actually, Next week is my first week. Next week. First week at Hacker Inc. Yes. So yeah, I'm super excited. I took a small break between between roles just to decompress, which I strongly recommend to anybody making a change. It's hard to do. I feel like we're always so... Is that like something you generally practice? I feel like a lot of people I know, it's like they rush straight into the next role because they're excited and they also want to get started. They also want to get paid. So they're like jumping right in like yeah. that. <laughs> It's something that I um, do a good job of recommending to and honoring for others. I'm not as good at practicing it myself. So a week and a day between gigs is, is I realize, not very much. But also, I, you know, once you accept an opportunity, you're all in there anyway. Yep. And so I've started meeting with the team. I'm clear on, you know, the work that needs to be done. And I'm super excited about really partnering with the team there and getting to know our customers and really having an impact. So are you taking a real week and a day off or are you meeting with people during your week and a day off? I may have met with a few people. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> and I've conducted a few interviews as well. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So this is a fake week and a day off. This is, I mean, I'm glad you're taking some time between like at least pseudo time. It's so hard, especially during COVID too. It's like, what else are you going to do? You're not going to go take a trip to Paris right now, like for your week. Exactly. So might as well, as long as you take it later, like as long as people take vacations at some point. Absolutely. Actually, I remember during my interview for Catalyst, I asked Kevin Chu, so one of the co-founders and our COO, I asked him when the last vacation he took was, because I always ask that in interviews because it is indicative of the culture. And word for word, pretty much, he said, people take a lot of vacations here. I haven't taken one in two years. I'm going to, I know I'm going to get sick one of these days. Two weeks later, he had COVID. Yeah. So... I blame it on his lack of vacation, <laughs> but good to it's take. It's so important. Yeah. Definitely. What are you most excited about with the new role? I could talk all day about what I'm excited about with the new role. I mean, we've got time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good. So there are a few things. One, you know, it's really important to me to feel like I'm in lockstep and aligned with the team and the values of the company. So culture was really important and the team. And I'm super excited about everybody that I'm going to work with there. And what's even more endearing is that because I've been in the space for so long, when I announced that I was making the move, I got so much unsolicited feedback on the quality of the people at Hackering. So that was really, it was a nice, it wasn't a surprise so much because I felt like that was the case based on everybody that I met. But just the fact that people took the time to reach out and say that, that I was joining a great team was really exciting. I think the other piece of it is, 
you know, I'm an HR nerd at heart. That's where I started my career. And so I've always stayed in the space, even when I moved to the provider side. What HackerRank is, is doing is pretty profound. A third of the world's developers use HackerRank to learn and practice coding skills. And they really are committed to enabling people to find the right opportunity. And so they're really clear about the impact that they can have on the world, as well as on customers. Every company really today is a tech company in some way, shape, or form. And so the impact opportunity is pretty big. And the work that they're doing is, is really amazing. Have you seen the, um, the WeWork documentary yet with Adam, about Adam Newman in them? I have, yes. <laughs> That's where my <laughs> mind went to, and every company's a tech company. I agree with you, but I'm having flashbacks to him <laughs> doing everything he can to not call WeWork a real estate company. <laughs> but uh, no, that's it does sound like a fantastic opportunity. And what you mentioned about that kind of third-party validation around the team that you're joining, mm-hmm. it's the biggest thing. Like it's no matter, you could have all the most amazing interviews, but you don't know if they're just like putting their best people forward or if people are being wholly honest in them. But when you start getting that third-party validation or when you start working there and you meet other people and you're like, oh man, these people are actually everything they said they were. It's an amazing feeling. It just keeps getting better and better. Absolutely. Oh, well, I'm excited for you. Thank you. Do you have to learn some coding? Do you know how to do some coding stuff? I do not know how to code. No. First thing I need to do is learn how to use HackerRank specifically. That makes sense. So I'll spend my time learning the product and the impact that it has for customers. And I'm probably best suited to ensuring that we're doing the right things for our customers versus coding. (laughs) Fair enough. I wondered how much context you need. I was joking with my head of marketing the other day that we've both started three different HTML, CSS courses, emphasis on the word started. And uh, (laughs) yeah, we're both pretty useless. So uh, as long as everyone's playing to their strengths. I was just going to say, it's important to know your strengths and play to those. (laughs) Definitely. So what are your, I mean, you've got this massive, this amazing background in in HR. So Mm -hmm. to put you on the spot, what are your HR superpowers? Mm. So one of the things I pride myself in is my focus on colleague growth and development. I take a deep personal interest in the people that I work with, whether they're on my team or they're an adjacent team. As a leader, I feel like your responsibility is to be a steward for talent for the organization. So you're always recruiting to the organization and you're always developing people. And I think if there's one thing in my career that I look back on that I'm most proud of is that I've had an impact on people's career trajectory. There are a number of people who really were able to get in touch with what they're truly capable of and exceeded their own expectations for where their career could go. And that's just, it's very endearing. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's an honor to be a part of that, you know, and you get so much from it. You learn so much from the people that you work with. So, yeah, I would say that that's probably my biggest strength from a, a people and talent and HR perspective. I love it. And it feeds right into my my theory that everything is customer success because it's, it is. if it's not the customer, it's the employee team. If it's not the employee team, it's, you know, friends and family. Like if the more we all focus on helping each other be successful, just the happier we are, the better the environments we're in are. So I, I love that you basically take that approach, but to your colleagues and to your, your team. Yeah, I think one of my underlying tenets as a leader in customer success is that you enable a great customer experience or a great colleague experience. And I like to think of it as a leader in customer success. I I like to think of it as either you serve the customer or you serve the people who serve the customer. 
we all have customers. None of us are not customer facing. That's one of the one of the phrases that don't work in my environment. We're all customer facing. Our employees are customers. Our colleagues across the the aisle in other teams in sales, marketing, product engineering, they're all customers. And then we have our external customers as well. I think that's such an important framework to view a company. And I think that's very conducive to success in general. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this to dive into your HR side of your brain a little bit, because I was helping to hire for a role recently. And I was advised that because I'd made some comments around personality or this person seemed more reserved on the call or versus this one was really bubbly and enigmatic. And like, there's all the, the those sorts of things. And I was advised to not really weigh that in my decision, or at least what the candidate that I was wanting to move forward with and to focus more on sort of other things. And I agreed with it in some sense, but I also like think it's role dependent as well. And so I'm curious to get your thoughts on how much personality should come into play when you're hiring someone, especially if it's for an external customer facing role or an external marketing role or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think, you know, I feel for my colleagues and my friends and people teams who are trying to help you toe the line between not hiring people who look and act just like you, which is that kind of similar to me or similar as me bias that we all have. And that's where I think personality can start to weigh in if you're not objective about what's required for the role. Certain personality traits are objectively a requirement for specific roles. For example, if somebody has a hard time establishing rapport and I'm interviewing them for a customer success manager role, that interview simulates what their experience is going to be on calls with customers. If they're not extroverted, if they can't carry the conversation, if I'm having a bad day and they can't carry it, they may have challenges, you know, when they get into their role, especially if they're trying to shift into a new domain or a new function. So I think you have to be really clear about objectively what personality traits are required for success in that role and be really candid with yourself about those biases that we have that we typically want to hire people who look and act and, and behave and, and are similar to us. So I think it's it's good advice, but I think it's advice with an asterisk behind it where you have to really qualify what, what that's about. Yes, I think it's a great, you unpack that really beautifully. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. And, and I think it's, yeah, it, it goes back to, like you said, tying everything to an objective part component to the role. So maybe that's something I think about for future job descriptions I write, right? Is is personality or is, like you mentioned, you know, the ability to establish rapport, if I can go deeper, that more specific than just saying personality? And can I factor those into the objective measures? That will help not only me, but other team members to evaluate someone the same or look through the same lens. So that's really helpful. Thank you. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. Did you say 11 million developers use HackerRank for their skill? Uh, yes, 11 million. That is a lot of customers. Those are actual developers. So that's talent. So that's okay. the supply side. Yeah. HackerRank has over 2,000 customers and over 25% of the Fortune 100 are using HackerRank. That's amazing. Yeah. So in terms of what your role will encompass, like, are you going to be focused on the 2,000 customers or are you also touching the 11 million, <laughs> the, the long tail <laughs> side, let's say, or the, the supply side? I'm primarily focused on um, the customers. I'll be in the chief customer officer role. So my job is to ensure that every customer 
across our portfolio is deriving value from the hacker rank experience. And, and we're ensuring that they are maximizing what they get in their investment. Very cool. And is value... I'm going to drill you in all these questions that you haven't started at the role, but it's, I find it really interesting <laughs> because the people side of things, I mean, that's what we talk a lot about in the podcast, right? Is just like people, how do they think? How do they behave? How does this all work? So I'm, I'm curious and where that intersects with customer success. So have you given thought to, is a successful customer one that makes hires? And is it is that the main metric or does it go beyond that? Like what kind of things are you going to be looking for? Or what kind of things should I say are those 2000 customers looking for from their experience with Hackering? Yeah, absolutely. They want to hire not only the best talent, but the right talent for their needs. And so really the measures of value are going to vary slightly depending on specific customer objectives. Some are hiring brand new teams in brand new markets and are looking for help with that. Many are have shifted to a wholly virtual hiring process. And so they're looking for a streamlined but delightful candidate experience and hiring manager experience that helps them get to the right outcome, the right decision quickly. And so it really is going to vary, but it is all focused on access to the right talent, ensuring that you're making the right hires for the role at hand, and ensuring that it's a delightful experience for the people moving through the process, candidates, recruiters, and hiring managers alike. I love love, love the trend. I, I mean, at least from my perspective, it looks like a trend over the last five years where people actually give a shit about the imp- the new hire experience, like yes. the application funnel, like the amount of memes that I see where it's, you know, there's someone celebrating because they didn't have to upload their resume and then refill out all the same information. Like that's <laughs> a, a small one, but like, I can only imagine on the developer side too, like companies seem to care a lot more now about what that, how that funnel feels, as well as how the new hire experience feels. Absolutely. You know, it's really critical that you think of candidates just like you think of customers. This is why so much of my world intersects in the work that I do. My history from a a human resource perspective, but my passion for customers, and then my passion for great experiences. And, you know, it's a talent. Talent drives the market. It's not an, an employer's market. Things shift occasionally in the macroeconomic environment, and and sometimes there are adjustments. But the reality is, if you look at the number of people in the workforce or who want to be in the workforce and the number of openings that we have, particularly in engineering and developer roles, it's still very much a talent-driven market. So if you don't put your best foot forward from day one, from the recruitment process, all the way through the life cycle of the employee, then you're going to lose. You won't have access to the right talent and you will lose competitive advantage. I think that's so important for people to hear. <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna use that in the promo. <laughs> you know, I think it's such a great point. The data backs it up. Like it's it's like justifying the case for customer success, right? It's like mm-hmm. should be obvious, but there have been, you know, you can still look at so many examples where people don't seem to grasp the importance. And yeah, I think it's a a really important way to look at it from day one in terms of hiring. And you mentioned, you know, it's we're in a global market now, like it's a, a mm-hmm. virtual market. People can work almost from anywhere. Do you think that that's something that's going to continue after the pandemic? Or do you think that it's going to go mostly back to local hiring or 50-50? I mean, I know we're talking speculation, but curious where yeah. your expertise makes you inclined to lie on that. 
Yeah. So this is an area of real passion for me. If you had asked me 18 months ago what was going to happen in the future of work, I would have been talking like in the next decade, this is what we're going to see. You didn't predict COVID and I didn't predict COVID. (laughs) Come on, Deborah. (laughs) And and a global quarantine scenario where nobody went anywhere. I mean, I got 25,000 air miles in January and February of last year. So that tells you I'm used to being out there and moving around and the world has fundamentally shifted. So, yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. One, COVID and the quarantine and the situation with the pandemic really expedited our movement into what the future was already holding, which was that the talent market is global. Companies are going to have to get out of this antiquated mindset that butts and seats are the way to go. Is there value in having people co-located for collaboration purposes? Absolutely. Is all of that talent sitting in the same geographic area? Hell no. You know, especially not now. If you look at all the people who migrated out of San Francisco and New York and the big cities and just kind of what's happening in moving into rural environments and to different countries, it's going to continue to be a remote first environment. And in fact, one of the smart things that I think Hacker Inc. really did was further invest in enabling a truly powerful remote hiring experience. It's hard. We all grew up, you know, and we're accustomed to meeting people face-to-face when you're interviewing. Even if they were from a different market, we would get on a plane, we wouldn't hesitate, or we would bring them to us and we would meet them in person and we would do handshakes and all those things that we don't do anymore. (laughs) I miss hugs more than anything right now. I know, right? Well, apparently hugs are safer than handshakes, so. Uh-huh. Okay, well, this is good to know. <laughs> yes. Well, I feel like that opens another jar of HR worms if we're talking about hugging candidates now. Yeah. When they come in, but... <laughs> I'm not advocating <laughs> hugging candidates. For the record. But I do miss hugs as a human. Yes, I'm just putting that definitely. out there. <laughs> That's a wholly different podcast, Yeah, ben. exactly. <laughs> but, you know, HackerRank saw over 110% increase in remote interviewing. During the pandemic, so think about it, companies did slow down their hiring for a period of time, but the reality is they didn't get stopped by the fact that they had to go remote. So that's where you see, you know, the real investment in finding the right talent wherever they are and ensuring that you can make the right decisions in spite of the fact that we can't sit in a conference room and whiteboard together. We can create virtual experiences that do that, just that so that you can make the right decisions and people end up in the right roles. Definitely. It'll be interesting to see how it lands and if it's split up by department or function or industry or that sort of thing. I can't wait to be in person again. And like I, I was talking about this the other day with the team and I'm like, I think it's impossible to do a remote event that is as good as a live event. Like mm-hmm. there's just... I think it has to do with the hormones that get released when you're with a physical human, yeah. but you can't create that same exact thing. It's And so I think there's a lot that we can recreate virtually, but it will be like some things like that will absolutely be in person. Absolutely. So it'll be interesting to see how the chips fall, how the cards fall. I don't know. Some expression like that. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> how the cookie crumbles. How about that? There you go. There you it's go. It's afternoon works. snack time for me. <laughs> I'm doing the intermittent fasting thing right now. So my normal dietary eating is all uh, all messed up. My dietary clock. Oh my goodness. I do intermittent fasting as well. But my my window opened just before this call. So I had a, a bit to eat before. And so you don't have hangry, Deborah, which is a good thing. Good. Because that'd be a very different <laughs> podcast. 
I struggle because I like I can do the sixteen hours and then but then I never stick to the eight. So my time my window always shifts. <laughs> so it's like I'll be <laughs> now your window's overnight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I know what I want it to be, but when it's two people, like, you know, I can't control when my partner's hungry and then we gotta figure that out. So <laughs> I just eat in rotating periods of sixteen <laughs> and whatever it ends up. <laughs> You're but doing a good working. job, Ben. That's it's the good. important thing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so one of the questions I was I'm curious if you what you prepared an answer for this one, because I wanted to ask you, I thought you'd need some some advanced warning on it, but curious to know what the strangest interview question you've ever heard or seen is. <laughs> I don't know that this was really strange, but this is shocking and this will tell you a lot. Shocking works. I was once asked in an interview by a VP of HR, I was interviewing if I was going to have any more children. Okay, so wait, you were interviewing for a VP of HR. I was interviewing with the VP of with HR. VP this of was okay. way back in my early okay. days. And they yes. asked you if you were planning to have any more children. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Wait, is there something wrong with that? Ah, <laughs> uh, Ben, how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> that is crazy. Does your people team listen to this? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank God. <laughs> yeah, I'm not allowed to interview anyone anymore. <laughs> What did you do or what did you say? I was so caught off guard because even though it was it was a lifetime ago, it was back was in the 90s. Was it a test? Were they going to see if you were going to call them out? I, sadly, I don't think it was a test. No one did tests like that in the 90s. Maybe now. But. They did other crazy stuff. I can tell you that for sure. So basically, I was so caught off guard. I said, I haven't really thought about that yet. I mean, fair enough. I mean, quite clearly they have. So, you know, yeah. you can just get them to what I do you want? I guess I need to, to do say? more planning. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> that is crazy. Well, I guess it's a good thing now. Like we had a, a training, I want to say last week. I think we have them a couple of times a year on creating inclusive workplaces and, mm-hmm. and workplace appropriateness. And I mean, it would be a problem if anyone came away not saying, well, that was all common sense. I think like most of it is. So it's, there's this feeling of like, do we need to? And it's good that we do them. It reminds you of things and keeps it fresh. And it's good. Like, I, because I, I was thinking about it after, because I came away being like, okay, I'm, I mean, I find most of that to be common sense. But then I was like, you know what? That's probably a good thing. Like that most people feel that way because that's indicative of how far we've come because all this stuff yeah. was very acceptable um, very recently. And yes. I think we forget how recent a lot of this stuff was commonplace. So it's a good spot to be in. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, it's refreshers are always good. And I think we all need them. It just was so alarming to me that it was a VP of HR asking the question. And we knew better than this in the 90s, by the way. Like there's a ton that we've learned in the process. They also have some scotch and like they were. (laughs) Yeah, I'm picturing that. No, we weren't smoking cigarettes and drinking scotch in the interview. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't quite Mad Men. It wasn't the 60s. It was was the 90s. Uh, That's uh, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, hope they're doing well wherever they are. (laughs) Lots of kids. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Well, moving away from that a little bit more abruptly, we have uh, an event coming up next week that's all about being data-driven in customer success. So specific tools, strategies, and how they weave together to achieve specific outcomes. And so for a company that might be NDR forecasting or prevention, churn prevention or something that to get triggers for when customers might be at risk or something like that. Is there something like that in the talent space? Like, is there something with hacker rank or that you've seen just in, in people orgs where there's an opportunity to be 
really data-driven about key decisions or get warnings or things like that? Absolutely. It's amazing how when looking at talent and when looking at customers and thinking about, you know, how do you measure success and how do you measure risk? There's so much that is aligned between the two. It's it's basically a different audience, but you know, you measure you measure your talent pipeline just like you do in sales with the marketing pipeline. You measure your conversion rate of candidates who accept, right? You measure your ENPS and you measure your strength of your team. So you you measure promotability, people at risk, people on performance improvement plans and performance levels. It is it is exactly the same as what we is what we measure in customer success, but you just swap out employee for customer. I love that. Vice versa. Yeah. And is there a tool or a way to like combine all of that and weight different factors some kind of the way we do customer health scores? Is there a way to do that? So what's interesting is that in HR tech, the sophistication of tooling is not as mature as what you see in marketing and sales, which I think is is what has given rise to companies like HackerRank yeah. and all of the work tech that you see on the market. And, and you've got you know really powerful tools for large enterprises like Workday and SAP and Cornerstone, who all have um, different product suites that address pieces of it. But there's not one elegant tool like a catalyst for customer success where it just rolls it all together. You oftentimes see, you know, those, those large platforms and other solutions that are brought together and then reporting that comes back into like a BI tool to surface it. And truly, you wouldn't have one tool that is focused on every aspect of the employee lifecycle. You don't right. have candidates in your HCM or in your skills cloud or or whatnot. So you really do have to think of it, given the complexity of, of regulations around the differences between candidates and applicants and applicants and employees. Right. You really do have to have a division of, of the information. Interesting. But the savvy people, executives and companies are asking those questions exactly. And they're monitoring dashboards related to their talent, just like they're monitoring dashboards related to their customers. That's really cool. Yeah, there's probably some really interesting stuff that can be done on that side, especially with your your employees and even just evaluating employee happiness. And like you said, promotability, I'd be so curious to like understand all the underlying data and how to measure that in an objective way. Actually, this is an interesting question because I feel like I heard this as a rumor. I don't know if it's fact, but I feel like you will know for sure. That like large companies have the ability to see or know basically like how much of a, how often they need to promote someone and how much of a raise someone needs to see statistically in order to retain them. Mm-hmm. That's like a thing that they're like, so they have a thing that speeds up, like you need to give this person a minimum of 10K and a promotion by like this time, or they're it is. 80% yes. likely to leave. It's true. Yes. Some of the really large uh, platforms. So it would be just the largest of companies who would have access to that kind of technology that's available off the shelf. For example, you know, Workday had released some product capabilities around that. Interesting. Now, you could, with other tools, approximate that if you're in a smaller company and you wanted to be scrappier about it. Interesting. I don't know if I like that. I'm just curious. <laughs> I'm curious about it, but I'm like, I don't know. If you're getting the $10,000 raise, you might. <laughs> well, yes, but it's, I guess it depends on how you build it, right? Because it'd be, in my mind, this is like, 
evil company executives at their headquarters deciding what's the minimum amount that we have to give people in order to keep them rather than like, okay, maybe you, that 10K is enough to keep them. But if you do 20K, then they'll be X amount more motivated and produce more. Mm. And where are those other factors? And so I, I guess it depends on who's designing it and what are they designing it for? Yeah, intention, I think, goes a long way. The way that I look at it is, for me, if I had access to that, it's another tool in my toolbox that helps me ensure like I'm not missing anything with my colleagues. You can have one-on-one conversations with your directs around or your team around what they want to do and where they want to grow and where they're at in their career trajectory. But the larger your team grows to, like I've I've had teams of 120, 140 people in the past, not all direct reports. There was layering, but you lose touch, right? You didn't sleep for two years. Yeah, I didn't sleep. Yes, I'm in, I'm in perpetual one-on-ones now. Yeah, exactly. But you lose a level of depth and personalization, the larger your team gets. So if you're a company of 100,000 employees worldwide and you're committed to, your intentions are, I want to retain and enable and unleash the talents, right? That we've already invested in. And I want to make sure that they're happy and engaged. I need to surface the flags that should be the indication that I need to step in. It's very much like Catalyst where you surface a flag and then you run a play And I know that sounds very contrived, but sometimes managers, they're running functions, they have other accountabilities. You lose track of, hey, somebody's been here in the same role for four years. And while they've gotten good raises every year, they may not be thriving in their role. Sometimes that external reminder of those insights will go a long way to helping you identify, okay, this is talent I need to spend time with right now. So if you use it in the right ways, it could be used for good, not evil. Definitely. Sounds like Catalyst <laughs> needs to make a pivot into uh, employee experience or something. This is one of my favorite questions to ask. What is an opinion you hold that others in your industry might disagree with? And you can't say asking about pregnancy in an interview. So an opinion that I hold that others may disagree with in my space. Gosh, this is a really hard question, Ben. It is. That's why I ask. Asking the hard-hitting questions that the people want to know. <laughs> Oh, come on. We talked intermittent <laughs> fasting and now you're, now you're throwing me a hardball. <laughs> so here's the thing. Can I speak to it from a customer success domain perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So there is an adage that the customer is always right and people will toss that around. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think the customer always has a unique perspective and we should respect and empathize with that perspective. But if you take the just a broad brush, the customer is always right. You may end up doing things in your product roadmap that don't make sense for the rest of your customers. You may end up doing things from a services perspective that that are not scalable or that lead to not the best outcomes. And so I really I think, you know, we use that phrase probably too loosely. And really should focus in on mutual success and partnership. Because when you have a partnership, you can actually talk through what they're looking for and why, what's possible and why, and come to a win-win agreement or agree to disagree on certain areas that are not deal breakers in the relationship. But there's sometimes this mindset that if the customer asks or the customer states it, we must absolutely knee-jerk and do it. And that doesn't always make sense for your business, frankly, it doesn't always make sense for the customer. 
So that may be a contrarian view. I do qualify. I absolutely am empathetic, you know, with customers and want to understand what they're trying to solve for so that we can come to the right conclusion together. But it's not an order taking. It's not an order taking environment. You know, it's not McDonald's where do you want fries with that? There literally needs to be more dialogue. Depending on the ARR of the customer, right? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone holds that sentiment until it's like one of the big customers and they're like, okay, yeah, we need to build that. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But I definitely agree with that approach. And I think I'm sure that everyone has encountered some situations like that before where it's felt like an order taking thing, or it's just that the customer expects it. Even if the company agrees that the customer's not always right, the customer thinks that they're always right. And so walking that tightrope is uh, is an interesting aspect of being a CSM. Yeah, absolutely. It's, being a CSM is a really hard job. Yes, that's why <laughs> I left being a CSM. <laughs> okay, closing with uh, another one of my faves because I've gotten so many good recommendations on this show. I usually ask people about things to buy on Amazon, but because Jeff Bezos has enough of our money, I'm going to open it up to Amazon or anywhere online. What is a life-changing item that people can buy that costs less than $50? You know, you're probably not going to like my answer. I read this question in preparation for this and I struggled and struggled and I thought I'm looking at this wrong. Here's what I would challenge you with. Take that $50 and invest it in a nonprofit. Like give it to somebody whose life will be changed by that $50, whether it's micro lending or it's, you know, contributing to a cause that you care about that's near and dear to your heart, whether it's a pet rescue or something focused on kids or homelessness or mental health, the way to change your life is to change other people's lives. So that's how I would invest the $50. You win the question. (laughs) That wasn't a question with a right or wrong answer, and yet you found the right one. I love that. I think that it's not enough people know, like know or have been, or at least consciously know that one of the easiest and fastest ways to make yourself happy is to do something for someone else. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like work, but I I remember reading it a a while ago in in a a book that a quick way to to get someone to like you is to ask them a favor. And it's so counterintuitive, Mm -hmm. but you're giving them an opportunity to do something nice for you, which in turn makes them feel really good. So it's really one of those little tricks and, and you know, I think, so I love the sentiment of that response. And I think it's a great thing to that everyone listening should, should go do with their $50. And you just made all our past guests bad who said to buy this or that on Amazon. So <laughs> I just get, I have such a short attention span that anything that I buy is like, oh, it's, it's shiny today, but tomorrow it's dull, you know? Yeah. And I really like, this was the hardest question for me to think about. And I went for a long walk earlier and finally came back with, there is not something that you buy that changes your life. There's something that you do that changes your life. So I love that. That's my take. Otherwise, it would be like a bottle of wine. <laughs> hey, I mean, a bottle of wine can change your life sometimes yes. to the better, sometimes to the worse. But this is true. This is true. Also, I, a topic for a, a different podcast. <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, I'm in the middle of a dry month right now, so I'm. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. We'll re-record. I know. I picked the. Wor- I'm moving to New York next month. I'm moving countries. I picked the worst possible time to stop drinking alcohol. Oh no! Where are you moving from, Ben? Uh, Toronto. Oh, I had no idea. Okay. Yeah. You didn't pick up on the the oots and a boots or whatever was in my nope. my accent. No. <laughs> Only when I went to clients in the South. When I'd go visit clients in Alabama or in South Carolina, they'd call me out immediately in the, my QBR presentations. <laughs> and I'd be like, really? You don't hear yourself? Like you're calling me having an accent? But 
Yeah. We'll see if I pick up a New Yorker one when I arrive. <laughs> I love it. Well, you're moving to one of my very favorite cities. So Excellent. I'm jealous. I'm very excited. Where are you? I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, nice. I mean, hey, that's the next tech scene. So after New York gets, you know, done, we'll be <laughs> headed down to Austin and that whole area. <laughs> yeah. Austin definitely is booming, I will tell you, with all the people that are departing San Francisco or the Bay Area, Silicon Valley and New York. It's crazy. Traffic there is going to be a nightmare. So all my friends who live in Austin are like, no, don't move to Austin. This is a terrible city. <laughs> don't come here. That's right. <laughs> They've got a counter campaign going on. <laughs> I mean, that'd be a good, not a bad idea. <laughs> awesome. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for joining me. It was so much fun talking with you. Oh, Ben, thanks so much for inviting me. I really appreciated it. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave us a review and share this podcast with a friend. If you want to learn more about Catalyst, visit Catalyst.io. Until next week, I'm Ben Wynn, and this was NPS I Love You. P.S. I love you.